It ain't that simple, mate. Hello and welcome to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast, where we talk about missions and poverty and just about everything that is related to that uh, subject area. And you are listening to the third episode in the second season of It Ain't That Simple, Mate, where we are focused on conversations, conversations with uh, partners and and friends that we have that are doing uh, amazing works in different parts of the world. Uh, now, uh, I must uh, confess again that the audio quality of um, Season 2 is going to be a bit rugged. That is just the reality of uh, trying to communicate over the internet in some of the places that we operate. So bear with us, be patient, maybe turn the volume up a little bit, listen a little bit more carefully. Uh, believe me, there's real nuggets in there and it's worth it. Uh, we love to hear your feedback, so if you do have any feedback from um, this episode or from others, um, send us an email, podcast at brighthopeworld.com, or you can leave a comment uh, on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash brighthopeworld. We love getting that stuff, it's encouraging, and we love to pass that on to partners as well. So without further ado, today we are talking to Mike Mann in Chiang Mai, Thailand, uh, Mike is a very long-standing partner uh, of Bright Hope Worlds through the Integrated Tribal Development Foundation uh, and is particularly special because it is through Mike and that partnership that Lamai Coffee comes, uh, which we love uh, a great deal, especially in this office, and we love supplying it uh, to all of you good folks who buy it. Um, but we do a lot more with uh, ITDF, and you'll hear all about that today. So I'll introduce uh, Mike and um, uh, kick the session off with saying to Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a second-generation missionary uh, and have lived in Thailand since the age of two. So uh, around 60-some years, 61 years now. Um, my parents, when they came to Thailand when I was two, they were missionaries working in agriculture among the, the hill tribes, especially the Karen. And so I was brought up here. And in the, being brought up here, uh, I became close to the work that my parents were doing and close to the hill tribes and wanted to continue the work and wanted to continue to help the hill tribes because the hill tribes make up less than 1%, around 1% of the population here in Thailand. And Mike, just just tell us a, a little bit, you know, obviously the, the conversation is going to center on the Hill Tribe people. Tell us a, a, about these people. Who, who are they and, you know, where, where have they come from? Because they're not Thai people, are they? No, they're not Thai. Um, well, there's a, there's a term in Chow Thai Pukau, Thai Pukau is their Thai, the ones that have papers are Thai nationals, but they're people that live in the mountains. But most of them don't have papers or citizenship. And because they came over from, started off in China, into to Burma, Myanmar, and then down into Thailand, or over to Laos, and then down into Thailand. And comparative to the, the Thai and the Korean have, have been here maybe um 60 years 70 years and are not really are second class citizens in respect uh they can't own land if you don't have papers you can't own land 
uh, they can't, they don't have access to government services like loans and medical assistance. Um, although in special cases, they do have some programs that help build tribes, but in general, they don't have access to that unless you are a Thai citizen. And so, so, so these these you know people are living a, a lot in the north of Thailand. If they can't own land, you know how how do they survive? Um, most of them are subsistence farmers, and they they're um, just living off the land as, um, but not. They're allowed to live on the land as long as they don't, they don't destroy it, as long as they don't cut down the trees or ruin the watershed or do a lot of burning and like that. So they're allowed to, to live there as homesteaders. And many of them have lived there many years and built their homes and traditionally have become owners of the land in a tribal tradition. But in the government, they don't have any government papers that they are uh, that they have ownership of the land. So the government can move them to other places. And that's what's happening with the forestry because of the forest problem of trees. They're trying to move villagers to other areas where they don't have to use the water sources and the trees that belong to the government uh, traditionally. So there are homesteaders. living off of subsistence uh, agriculture and looking for mushrooms and peppers and forest products and hunting and just living off the land that way. And so these folks have been historically, uh, you know, you see they're second class citizens, uh, you know, they have experienced a lot of poverty uh, over uh, a long time. Uh, you know, I'm guessing life has been pretty tough for them. Yeah, um, many of them left because of the, what's happening in Burma with the military uh, over there and the, being persecuted in, in some ways and have fled the country to come in. And, and the, the thing is, um, if you look at the Lahu, the Aka, and some of these groups, uh, there's Aka, Lahu, and tribal groups in Burma, and in some ways they're related, some of them are related to the Aka and Lahu groups in, in Thailand. And so when they flee uh, Burma, they come into Thailand and join relatives or friends and mix in with the villages here in Thailand. And so they don't have, they don't have the Thai language ability and so for the ones that can't speak Thai really don't have access to to any kind of markets or even access to be able to to talk to Thai officials and rely on on even even tribal people that have been here for 30 or 40 50 years are Thai isn't that good to be able and they're discriminated just because of the accent that they have when they do speak Thai so these these are are almost like sort of stateless people that have that have wandered from country to country over quite a period of time. Right. E- ended up in Thailand right. and 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 you know struggling as farmers, 
um, you know, in the, in the Chiang Mai and, and Chiang Rai and, and that, that sort of northern part of Thailand. Um, so t- just take us back to, you know, how your family first connected with these people. How how to sort of a, um, you know, a family from the US get connected in with hill tribe people in the north of Thailand? Well, when my dad came came to Thailand, uh, there was my, my sister and I. There were four of us in the family: my father, mother, and sister and I. Uh, he came as an agricultural missionary, and in the hills, many of the hill tribe people were growing opium. Um, that was one source of income, and a lot of them were growing it. About probably ten percent were growing it for their own medicinal purposes as a medicinal crop. But the rest were growing it to sell to middlemen, which is opium is a, a form of heroin. So 10 pounds right. or 10 kilos of opium makes about one pound or one kilo of heroin. And so my, my, my father thought, well, let's try to introduce other crops that could replace opium. Because the farmers weren't making a lot of money off the opium. It was the middleman that was coming to buy it. And they'd buy it cheap, and then they would refine it into heroin and sell it at a higher price. So uh, the idea was introduce other crops that can make money and do it not because it's it's illegal to grow it as as well, uh, and hopefully that will replace opium. And so that's what he was doing, was introducing crops, teaching them how to grow different crops, and all the crops that came out of it to replace open was coffee. Right. And and oh. this 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 was uh, um you know the the late king of Thailand um was also part of this sort of you know project and initiative, wasn't he? Right, right. Um when 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 he when he was working with these people, of course he learned the language Thai and he mainly working with the Korean people and learning Korean and they were they were growing rice or they were growing opium and they talked to villagers and okay let's take ten percent of your land and let's try this crop and continue to grow opium but we'll try this crop at ten percent or twenty percent of your land and if it works you can go the next year we'll do fifty percent of your land and eventually work to a hundred percent of the land as long as it, that it was working. And so they, at the same time it was illegal, the law enforcement was coming up and thrashing and arresting people that were growing opium. So those two things happening at one time, they were also forced. But the law enforcement said, okay, you have 10 years to grow a new crop. So, so my father and the, and the project were working with law enforcement together because it was very difficult to get them off cold turkey and do an, a, a gradual um, introduction of new crops because there was a livelihood um, staying there for their family. And, and so, what, while your father's doing this work and you, you were growing up as a you know, young man in Thailand, what what is that experience like? I mean, I you know, I guess you were reasonably young and and. Um, you probably didn't didn't know different, but you know what, what do you recall from growing up as a as a pretty tall Californian in uh, Thailand? What was it like? Yeah, you know, a lot of my friends were 
were, were hill tribes uh, or Thai people growing up because I was two years old. And uh, I can remember my father take me to villages and I would play with the kids or play with the pigs or play with the water buffaloes. One of my fondest memories is playing with uh, a blow gun, a kind of a, a blow gun, like a spitwad thing that would shoot spitwad, but in this case it would shoot peas or something from a tree or pods from the tree. And it was made out of bamboo and we played around with that a lot with the kids. And I just, growing all the way up through high school, uh, going on trips and just seeing the, the poverty and seeing the need. And I thought, well, I need to continue. And so I decided to get an education and come back and continue to work among the hill tribes. Um, so you went, because, you went back to the U.S., didn't you, at this point? So when I was in high school, I decided to, when I was in high school, I decided that my life work would be come back to Thailand and work in development among the hill tribes. So I was in high school, basically, when I started that and went back to the U.S. for, for edgy, for, for my college degrees and to prepare myself to come back and help work, work with the hill tribes and help them get out of poverty and, and have, a, have, have a place in Thai society, basically. And I'm guessing that probably was a pretty big adjustment as well, going and and studying in the U.S. after growing up in in Thailand. Was that was that an enjoyable experience, or was that a, a bit of a culture shock? That was a big culture shock. <laughs> Both ways is a culture shock. In Thailand, you're right. I'm a tall white American, and people try to approach me sometimes as an American, where I was more comfortable with the Thai ways and the tribal ways than I was the American way, so it was awkward. But they'd be surprised all of a sudden when I was able to speak and do things with them, and they, uh, they're very surprised. And in the States, at the same time, uh, being out of the U.S. and going back, I just felt out of place. And I can remember one incident in the States. I was at a gas station. I was in college, and I was at a gas station. And of course, in those days, they had pay phones. <laughs> so I had to make a call. I haven't ever used a pay phone before. And so I got in the booth and made, made the call, and it couldn't go through. I couldn't get through. It was busy or something, and I couldn't get through. So I called out to the gas attendant and asked, how do I get my money back? The money won't. How do I get my <laughs> money back? I didn't, the call didn't go through. And the attendant says uh, something about, you stupid guy, try hanging up. <laughs> so as soon as I hung up, the money came out of the, the machine. So, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of cases like that where it's just culturally different. And then going into the markets and seeing all the different kinds of brands and the breads and the different kinds of flowers and the different kinds of milk and the different kinds of this. For in Thailand, we got our milk in a plastic bag and um, the selection of bread wasn't there or, or whatever the brands. So you're overwhelmed in a supermarket in the States compared to in Thailand um, 40 years ago. 
So you you returned then um, to Thailand with the intention of working with and uh, you know helping the uh, hill tribe people, particularly in, in agriculture. How how did you kick that work off? Actually, um, I went back when I went to the states. I got my bachelor's degree in in agronomy. And there wasn't a mission organization. The mission organization didn't have enough funds to send me. So I continued to study and got a, another bachelor's degree in international agriculture. And still, the mission organization wasn't ready to fund me. So I decided to continue studying and to pick up three minors that had to do with marketing and ag business and diseases, um, pathogens and diseases of plants. And it was, and they still didn't have the funds to send me at the time. So I decided to get a master's and I like working as a plant pathologist, the disease. So I decided to get a master of plant pathology and come back and drive around in a, in a four wheel truck with a lab in the back because the villagers were losing so much of their crops because of disease. And they would get the pesticides and um, not only put it on the crop, but put it if they had a sore on their leg or something, or they were sick in the stomach, they would eat it and drink it or put it on their wounds on the leg. Or they would think one tablespoon will kill this, this many, this disease. But in two weeks, I'll add three tablespoons and kill the disease in one week or something. <laughs> And so they need to be educating that. So I, that's what I thought I was going to do. And that's what I prepared myself to do. And the day I got my master's, um, we were told by a close friend, a close friend from the church, told my, my wife, Becky, and I, um, try praying on your knees and go where the Lord Wherever the Lord will want you, you will go. Because we were praying for Thailand, Thailand, Thailand. And we did that. And the very next day, after I got my master's, I got a job offer, offer to go to southern Thailand, be the plant pathologist for dull pineapple. Ah. But, but uh, I didn't want to do that because I felt my heart was wanting to work with the hill tribes. And so... I got a little bit later after that, I turned that down a little bit later after that, I got a phone call from the mission organization says, oh, there's an opening for you and funds to send you to Thailand. Are you willing to go? So we jumped on that. And so that's how, so I came to Thailand, funded out of the Baptist Union of Sweden. The Baptist Union of Sweden. (laughs) The Baptist Union of Sweden. And they were looking for an agriculturalist to come and start a water project. And so we came. And so the first year I did a survey of 100 Lahu villages so we can rank them to the most affluent to least affluent so we can think about cost shares and contributions from the villagers when we do a water project. And doing this survey, we found out that the biggest problems that villagers have was lacking access to clean water. So I started uh, the Lahu Irrigation Project 
to help alleviate that. And the Lajo Irrigation Project was helping with uh, water, agriculture, to introduce crops for an income, and um, irrigation for, for drinking and for irrigation. So that was the the the, the, the goals, objectives of, of of the project, and so that's how it all started. Right. So that 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 kind of lays the foundation for the integrated tribal development program. Now, foundation that um, right. you lead that that's kind of where it finds its origin. Right. Because and it started just with the Lao Church because that's where the invitation was, but. Uh, after five years, we saw other tribal groups needed the same assistance in water and agriculture. And at that time, we were working with coffee and started a coffee co-op as well. So, but working with, with the villagers and helping them with water and with ag, then they asked us, oh, can you help us with education? Right. And so we thought we would try to do that. So we started helping in education. Oh, can you help us with health or clinics and stuff i mean and in education and health and clinics we didn't have the expertise but out of faith we thought well if there's people that will help fund it we would try to implement these programs and that's how it all started to the integrated we changed the name to the integrated travel development program which had an integration of projects integration of tribal groups because we had staff from all the different tribal groups uh, to do development uh, in northern thailand okay. and later on into burma let's um let's take a break there mike and and um when we come back i, I think it'd be um really interesting to to those sort of different parts of what you do that you just mentioned to to kind of drill in on each of those and and understand how they work which is it's just such a fascinating uh, and, and detailed and comprehensive models. So we'll take a short break, a break and, and uh, we will be right back to talk with Mike Mann in Thailand. It Ain't That Simple Mate is brought to you by Lamai Coffee. Lamai Coffee is the finest quality organic Arabica coffee from the northern hills of Thailand. We at Bright Hope World import the green beans into New Zealand and we roast them to perfection, then sell them to discerning coffee drinkers. We're all volunteers on the team, so all the profits go back into great community projects in Thailand, and that is why we call it the world's best tasting act of kindness. You can order Lamai coffee or find out more at lamai.co.nz. It ain't that simple, mate. Welcome back to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast, where we're talking to Mike Mann based out of Chiang Mai in Thailand. Um, Mike uh, is uh, an agricultural specialist and, and leads an organisation called the Integrated Tribal Development Foundation that works with uh, hill tribe people in um, that area in the north of Thailand. And before the break, we were just talking about um, some of Mike's background and history, uh, but also uh, some of the different aspects of what ITDF does. And uh, Mike, I'd like to, to to kind of deal with each one of these in, um, in in sequence, if I can, because I think the whole way that the program works is just so smart. Um, now, with with these villages, and and mostly the people are um, 
animist folk, sort of folk religion that that's the kind of um you know faith system of the the people for the most part that you're interacting with yeah uh, there are people that don't have citizenship uh, don't have access to government services yeah and i'll just tell a quick story um in one of our projects where we're doing education uh a villager committed suicide um the, the child was in the school one of our schools and the father committed suicide uh, near near the near his home and uh we looked tried to find his body for over a week and he hung himself and so we had a he, he was a new christian and so we had a service for him and after the service i said um should we, re we need to report this to the authorities, to the police, um, that someone that someone has died in the village? The villagers said to, to me, why should we? They don't even know he exists. Wow. So there's things like this that really bring back to you, you know, um, we're working with people that think they don't exist in Thai society, and we're trying to build bridges for between these villages and these people we're working with, with the government and Thai society to show that they really do exist. There are people in remote places that are not, that do not have access to the services and are just living off the land, so to speak. Yeah, I know, you know, I remember uh, being there with you once and you were talking about um you know getting the children registered you know getting the children oh, in yeah. the system so that they you know they they are on, on, you know on the radar and, and i you know see that how significant that is right right and that that uh, when i i guess when i talk about the schools i can talk about the benefits uh of, of the schools and how that has helped the community or i can well, get into that now it's up to you well, look, look, let's let's begin at the beginning and we'll work through this. So often where you are starting with these villages and, and I guess the key sort of felt need is around water projects, uh, water projects and, and sanitation. Um, so how does that work? How do you how do you find these villages that are often pretty remote places? How do you build relationship and, and, and how do you sort of begin the, the process? Yeah, um... When we did the survey for one year, all we did was get in the trucks and made a lot of walking to villages to find who, who is out there, and what are their capabilities, and what can they do to help, and what can we do to so we do it in a way that the villages have ownership of the the work that's going on, the work of the water project. And so through the survey, our priority was. First, a village that has no access to water, they are in poverty, there aren't, there aren't any other projects, World Vision, Compassion, or whoever are not in the area and are not working with them, no access to the government, and we would start off with these villages. And so we go in and talk to the villagers. First of all, this needs to be something that they want. And many of them at that time don't know the importance of clean water. But it does make them get sick, and if they get sick, it affects the labor, it affects how they can generate income, and how they can support their families. So water is very important. 
And so we would talk to them and then they would agree. And then we said, well, you need to come to have ownership of this project and you need to commit and how can you do this? And we talked about cost shares where they would give a percent of the water project. And, and, and that would be normally about maybe a hundred baht, two hundred baht, ten dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever they can give towards the water project, just so that they have a contribution. Right. As so well, they're kind of bought into it. Right. And as as well as they have to provide the labor. Each family has to provide at least one person to do the labor without being paid because it's their water project. And then they and, they would have to form a committee as well. So these are the policies of the project. And so you you're with them and and they're they're getting in their boots and all. Uh, well, probably not boots, probably bare feet, but um, they're getting in there and 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 helping build the the water tanks and the you know the the, the sort of families you 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 know tend to build a like a pipe and a and a tap to their home and a and a bathroom. Um, but the the whole system yeah. is is very simple, isn't it? It's it's you know you're finding a water source and it's it's gravity fed. There's not pumps and things that can break down typically. Just just I mean, it, sort of explain how the system works and how far away the the water's coming from. You know, just just give us a sense of that. Yeah, we find a water source that's above the village because we don't want to get into pumps uh, because the costs for fuel and so forth and the maintenance and all that. So we find a water source that's clean, uh, far away from any other villages that it's above the village we're putting the water source. So the water comes in down through gravity, goes through a sand charcoal filtration system that we we build and then through the sand charcoal uh, filtration, it goes into a storage tank. And from the storage tank, it will go to one, we'll do one faucet, one tap for every five households. Right. So um, we have for every five households. Then you come back a year or two later, and they on their own they'll bring the water to their house uh, and and to the bathrooms. They'll do that on their own. So we but the water projects we just did water. We didn't do bathrooms at the and we did water and education. And then we thought people people were still getting sick, and we knew why. That's because they didn't have the uh, bathrooms, the, the third part of the triangle, where you would have water and you have education, bathrooms and you have education, how to use both. And so I never wanted to get into latrines or bathrooms because I thought it would be too costly. And so we did research and did experimentation to come up with a cheaper bathroom slash toilet. And so we started when we in, integrated bathrooms with the water projects. At the same time, we, inter, we entered uh, gardens and training on watershed environment, hygiene, water maintenance, and, and how to solve water problems. The, the mortality rate went way down among children uh, wow. uh, when we implemented all three of the, the, the activities into our project. So now when we do a water system, it, it, it's water, bathrooms, gardens, and training, uh, kind of as a package thing. So how many villages have you um, done you know, roughly in, in the years that you've been doing this? How many, how many villages have you done and, and how many people are we talking about that have 
benefited from having water and sanitation and, and bathrooms. Do you have a I sense of that? that? Yeah, I think the figure is um, we're up to 280 some villages that we've done. And the population of people is around 70,000. 70,000 people. Wow. And about 500 or 600 miles of pipe. Oh, boy. Uh, has been laid. If you were to add up all the pipes in, in all these villages that we've done. So what it, what it does is villagers now don't have to spend an hour to go up to the water source, collect water an hour back pipe for, to get water for drinking and bathing and all that. Uh, they can have, spend more time in the fields, more time with their family because the water is just right there in their home or in a spigot next to their house. And so, and the health, their health is much better and sicknesses, they don't have to go to the hospital or clinic as much anymore. And so it's just turned, it's, a, it's turned, their, the village life has turned around because of this uh, introduction of water systems and bathrooms and gardens. So you, you're, you're building relationship over time with these folks and getting to know the villagers. I know a lot of your staff, if, if not you know, most of them, are Hill Tribe people themselves. And so, that, you know, there's, there's those sort of connections. What, what sort of comes next? In, in your sequence, you, you know, you, you, you've covered these things. You've talked about, um, you know, irrigation and, and market gardening then what was sort of the next thing that ITDP at that time, ITDF now, what was the next thing that you introduced into the program? Well, we increased, we were already doing some agricultural projects on a smaller scale, but we increased that to a larger level to, to introduce where they can actually make an income. Instead of subsistence farming, uh, have enough left over, have a surplus where they can actually make a living from agriculture. And out of that came coffee. Um, so we started the first, the first, very first coffee co-op in Thailand of Hill Tribes, which later we were the first fair trade coffee organization in, in Thailand as well. Um, and this was a way that they could make an income, support their family, not have to depend on opium or other means that are illegal um, to make a living. Right. So and of coffee, course, that that will include um, my coffee, of course. And, and a, uh, a few minutes ago in this recording, people would have heard a, uh, a fairly cheesy ad for my coffee. But um, just so people do make the connection, <laughs> that's where we get it from. These good people that are um, growing this coffee. And, and if we haven't said it before, it's pretty good coffee. Yes, yeah, what Lamai uses is it's the same coffee that we send to Starbucks and other big roasters here in Thailand. And uh, you can get it with Lamai coffee at a fraction of the price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, is this where, you know, because another, another way that Briar World is, is obviously quite connected, is with microloans. So is this where sort of microloans um, comes in at, at this point that that's sort of added into the repertoire? Yeah, 
when we started introducing crops and starting to work with farmers that were getting uh, needed money for seedlings for coffee or needed some money to pay for tuition because the coffee isn't out yet. Um, the, uh, with with Bright Hope World, we were able to get loan money for to establish loans, and this has helped the villages tremendously, uh, especially the villagers that were depending on large companies that were coming in and giving seed or corn seed and kind of making them, uh, giving them corn seed to grow corn and promising to buy their corn. The problem with that, and then they could give them the fertilizers and pesticides, but charge it for each and keep track and accounting system of what they gave to that farmer and then deduct it from the sales when they make the sale of their corn. And they would, the companies would come and look at the corn and say, oh, it's not, the color's off or the size is off. We can't pay you 20 baht a kilo. We only can give you 10 baht a kilo. Wow. And that 10 baht a kilo isn't enough to pay off what they owe the company for pesticides, fertilizers, and for the seed itself. So these folks and essentially become, death. they become like indentured servants, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they become in debt or slave to the to the company. So the loans help break this cycle where they can buy their own seeds and then sell it to whoever they like. As well as we have a, with the loans, they have to do make a project that's involved in agriculture and it's done organically as well. Yeah. Um, and it needs to be paid back within one in, in one year. And so for 30 years, we haven't had a default. Uh, it's always been paid back. So That's hundreds, if, if not thousands of loans and, and no one has ever failed to pay, pay it back. Thousands, thousands of loans and we had it's all been paid back. That's extraordinary. Yeah, no, it's wow. a great program, a very great Good program because it's money that's always there that continues to evolve and continues to help farmers. And I think we have around 500 farmers now on, on this loan program. Uh-huh. So, Mike, then I guess it's a later in the piece. Um, then we have, uh, well, I'm, I'm just trying to understand the sequence. Then we have um, the medical clinics. Is that is that sort of the next piece that, that came yeah, along? Yeah, kind of clinics. Um, well, the next piece, I, I guess it was about at the same time, but education came a little bit. We started working, setting up preschool, a preschool. And then from that preschool, it led into um, an elementary school. Um, started when, when they got the water, they got some income generation. Then the villagers asked us, well, oh, can you help us in education? Our kids don't have access to any schools and the schools are too far They're in the lowlands or, or over the, the over the mountain, the next ridge and this is too far and our kids aren't getting an education. Can you help with that? And we didn't know anything about education, but we said, OK, we will try it and we will do it for three years. Then so we established an M- MOU with the Ministry of Education. We said, OK, here we got funds for three years to, to build a small school to pay for some teachers 
they pay for meals, to uniforms, and so forth, curriculum. And um, after three years, we're doing an evaluation to see if we continue or not. And it's, it's led up to 13 years now, and we have two schools that go up to sixth grade, uh, one in Mat Jam and one in Umpoy. Then we have two other schools that go up to third grade, which Bright Hope Road funds um, in in Dock, in the Dock area. And there's two schools there. And the idea is to eventually to help these two schools that are up to third grade get up to sixth grade, like we have like we have in Matt Jam and Umquay. Because we're trying to we believe that education should be where the children are or where the villages are. Yeah. It's very difficult to pull young children out and put them in hostels or dormitories in the city. And they lose the culture and they they lose the family unit. And so we're trying to bring education to them. What's really interesting as, as well, Mike, is, is that... Um, you know, and people will be curious about the the spiritual aspects of what ITDF does, but this is where it comes in, isn't it? The you know the the teachers are able to you know bring faith into the school environment, aren't they? Yeah, the, the, our education is our evangelistic evangelism tool uh, because our parents, because the, the teachers are are Christians and. Um, they are able to, to work with the parents through the children, and they have Bible classes in the schools, and they're singing songs and bringing up and bringing them up in a Christian community, without any Buddhist monk um, um, traditions or statues in front of the school. It's, it's, it's totally Christian. And and you know you, you talked before there there've been um, you know about th- seventy thousand people that have been through water projects. I know not all of those people will have access to the the schooling and, and hence the um, evangelists. But and and not to be too you know sort of focused on on numbers. I know that's not what it's about. But do you have a sense of what the the spiritual response has been over all those villages, over all those people from the work that ITDF has done? Yeah, it's in the hundreds. Um, I don't know exactly how much because we work, we don't really, we work with local churches. Um, if there's a local church, which we introduce the families, we introduce the projects and we work through the local church so that their pastors and their churches can grow. And so with the baptisms and all that, it's, it's, a lot of it's through the local church. Um, because we're trying to build the capacity of the local church mm. to be able to reach the community. And so it's helped the local church. The schools have helped the local church. The school has helped the children. As Fraser talked earlier regarding citizenship, taking the children down to get citizenized, if there's such a word, but to, yeah. to, to get their papers. Um, it's helped keep children from getting married because in, in this culture many children get married at 12 13 years old and they skip their teenage years and so this has helped them in to, to stay in school because we have scholarships 
it doesn't end after they after they finish if they're finished at our school at sixth grade we have scholarships to help them at seventh eighth and ninth eleventh and twelfth in another school whether it's a government school uh in the city for them to stay at a hostel or dormitory but they're they're older they're they're at the seventh grade level instead of the first grade level so we would love to have the schools go all the way up to ninth grade in the village, but that, that's very difficult to, 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 to do. That's one of our goals, but it's very difficult to do. So, well, actually, I mean, you know, that, that was going to be my next question. And, and, you know, we are running out of time. But I, I did want to say, as you know, as you've worked up the, uh, I suppose, the hierarchy of needs is as you've helped lift these communities, the, the villages up you know, a, a notch each time with each thing that you're doing, uh, you know, what's left? What what else would you like to see happen in these villages? Well, we're doing the clinics because we've also been, in, introduced the clinics to help them in areas of health. So we're helping them in all facets, as you've mentioned. Um, at the same time, right now, we, we, we've done an update on our MOUs with uh, two schools. Um, one in Greymoke uh, and one in Mojo. Uh, one school in Matjam, we've already turned that over to the government. And so in, th in three years, we're going to turn over the Mojo school and the Greymoke school over to the government. At the same time, this year, we're starting a new school in a new place uh, that a request has come in. So we'll continue to, to help with establishing schools and possibly some more clinics. But at the same time, thinking of projects like building projects for elderly who, who lost their children or don't have their children there and there, a big rainstorm comes through and blows off their roof and they, they need help to have a new roof or a new floor or new walls or whatever. Uh, so we're, we're thinking about something like that as well as looking at ways we can help them get citizenship, projects to help them get citizenship. Um, right. And the best way actually for helping them to get citizenship is through the children as we establish schools. Right, and and very quick, um, Mike, before we uh, we do conclude, um, you know, how, how have the Hill Tribes been impacted by COVID? We, we know that Thailand has not done too bad, but as of um, July to uh, 2021, where we are now, um, you know, there has been a bit of a rise in Thailand generally. Have the hill tribes been affected by COVID? Yeah, it's, it's, it's affected the coffee and pick, sometimes picking up coffee from the villages. If you can't go into the villages to pick it up or they can't deliver it or you can't cross provinces to get the coffee. Um, it's affected the supply chain for us to ship the coffee, whether it's to, to Bright Hope or to Starbucks or to Atlanta, USA, because of the shipping, the shipping, um, being, shipping uh, companies being closed down because of COVID. And it's affected the Hill Tribes from going up and doing some water projects because you can't get into the village or it's closed down the schools because the children are very close approximately, very close to each city, next to each other. And the, 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 nationally, they've gone on online teaching, but you can't do online teaching in the village because the access of 
the internet is very slow or no access at all. Mm. So it's affected them um, in many ways as with their own markets as well as they, to market their crops. They're having more trouble doing that since consumers aren't buying the product as well. Um, so things are starting to open up again. It goes, that's the, the, the cycle. It opens up, it closes, it opens up and closes, but things are starting to open up again. We just pray that it continues to open up. Yeah, we do, we do indeed. Um, yeah, we're delighted to know that uh, at least the health impacts have been, um, you know, somewhat uh, avoided in in these um, hill tribes where, you know, I'm guessing it would not be easy to cope with a lot of COVID cases. So we, we are, are glad to know that at least. But um, yeah, we we look forward to. Um, you know, having another discussion when COVID is behind us, and and to see what's next for ITDF and and the uh, the villages, we're, we're quite confident that um, other ideas will will emerge. You know, we just love what you guys do. Hey, yeah. thanks, thanks so much, uh, Mike. It's been a pleasure to talk. Okay, okay, thank you. Bye. All right, bye now. That is Mike Mann from the Integrated Tribal Development Foundation in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Great guy, a lot of great stories, and uh, personally I've spent many, many hours in a four-wheel drive with uh, Mike on some very rough roads in the hills of Thailand, and uh, just a fantastic guy, and they have a fantastic ministry. Uh, I'll put a link in the uh, episode uh, notes if you want to find out more about ITDF and and read reports and and keep up to date with what they're doing. Uh, But for now, um, I've been uh, Fraser Scott, the Executive Director of Bright Hope World, joining you today. Uh, uh, Hello from Kevin. He is uh, not uh, in the studio at this time to record these uh, intros and outros, but he is with us in spirit nonetheless. So hello to Kevin if you're listening. Uh, Thanks all for joining us and we will catch you next time on It Ain't That Simple Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast. Mm